Thanks for listening to The Derivative. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as legal, business, investment, or tax advice. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of RCM Alternatives, their affiliates, or companies featured. Due to industry regulations, participants on this podcast are instructed not to make specific trade recommendations nor reference past or potential profits, and listeners are reminded that managed futures, commodity trading, and other alternative investments are complex and carry a risk of substantial losses. As such, they are not suitable for all investors. Welcome to The Derivative by RCM Alternatives, where we dive into what makes alternative investments go, analyze the strategies of unique hedge fund managers, and chat with interesting guests from across the investment world. You know, we realized quite quickly that, you know, if you take a system that you trade in, in bonds, for example, or currencies that has a 6% volatility, and then you try to trade natural gas that not only has a, pick a number, 46% volatility, yeah. and, it, and it ranges from, from 20 to 120, and it can do that very quickly. All of a sudden, you know, you realize there's some limitations to those traditional systems. heading up into the Canadian wilderness today to talk alts, oil, trend following, and more. Uh, you don't hear of too many hedge fund shops located in Canada, much less Calgary or Alberta. Uh, but we've got one of us today, and Tim Pickering, founder, president, and CIO of Auspice Capital, uh, who returned to his roots and set up shop right there in Calgary, away from the hustle and bustle of New York or London or Chicago. Uh, and Auspice does a lot of things, a lot of things well, and Tim looks at this industry and his own investment models in a quite unique way in my opinion so excited to dive in welcome Tim thank you for having me thanks for being here uh, so I mentioned Calgary in there in the intro a little bit perhaps overly so but uh, you're actually today out of the city at your lake house right where is that we are in uh, yeah I'm about three hours south uh, west of Calgary uh, in the East Kootenai region of British Columbia uh, so right in the Canadian Rockies, uh, you go through Banff and Kootenai National Park and you pop out on the other side of the valley and and um, on a lake called Columbia Lake, which is actually the headwater of the Columbia River that flows all the way to Astoria, Oregon. Got it, which is where Lewis and Clark eventually ended up in, right? <laughs> That's right. The Missouri didn't work and they poured <laughs> it over to the uh, Columbia. That's so right. to me, a Canadian lake's got to be freezing cold, but you were saying it's not actually warm. Yeah, it's uh, we're in a very warm area. There are uh, fruit trees around here. It's a very warm valley, despite uh, being in the Rockies. Um, lake warms up to 70, 80 degrees in the summer and uh, a beautiful place to spend time. We've had a home here for roughly 20 years. And, um, you know, now with uh, COVID and, and being remote, we've had the opportunity to spend uh, quite a bit of time here this year. That's awesome. I I, we were talking last year when I was up in Glacier National Park, top of Montana with my family, and I was kicking around, perhaps driving the extra few hours to come up right. and visit you there, but I didn't. So next time. That's right. Well, yeah, if they ever open the border up, uh, Montana's just a hop, skip, and a jump, about two hours south of me here, and um, not even two hours, but an hour and a half, I guess, and uh, very easy to get down into that that area, beautiful part of the world, know it very well. Agreed. Very beautiful. Um, so tell us a little bit about Calgary and Alberta. It's big ag and oil and uh, all the rest, right? 
cattle. Yeah, yeah, all of those things. Um, I'm originally from a farming family out in the Canadian prairies uh, east of Alberta in the province of Saskatchewan. Came to Calgary very young um, and was went to university there. Um, we are on the eastern side of the Rockies. Think of Denver, very similar. Um, big ag in the province, um, but probably the most uh, noteworthy aspect of, of Alberta is, um, you know, we are the third largest uh, oil reserve in the world by sort of the classic measures. Many believe that if you... In the world. Sort of in the world. And, yeah. uh, you know, my pitch has always been if you, if you take any modern recovery techniques, um, especially including the oil sands, um, it is the largest oil reserve in the world um, by modern recovery methodologies. But you're on the you're uh, in the lesser opinion there. A lot of people agree with you in that, or that's your own. Uh, no, I think I think factually we can we can actually demonstrate that. I think it's it's more that uh, it's easier to talk about Saudi Arabia. Um, it's easier to talk about, obviously, you know, given the, the size of the U.S. Uh, market now and, and the consumer market, um, Canada just doesn't wave its flag overly aggressively. And, um, but it is a massive uh, oil producing region, not without some controversy, as we've seen in the media over the years. And, um, but a very, you know, at the end of the day, Calgary is an oil town. Really? More so than the stampede and everything it's known for? Well, that's part of the culture. I mean, you know, people come from all over the world uh, to this to the Calgary Stampede. It's the largest what they call outdoor rodeo in the world. Um, so there's there's some other very large rodeos. Uh, I lived in Houston, very large rodeo, uh, Las Vegas, and and different places. But uh, Calgary's a big one. Uh, it's definitely the destination for that culture. Unfortunately, like many things, it was canceled this year for the first time in over a hundred years. So it's kind of a bit of a tragedy, but, um, oh, really? you know, economically, you know, between things like that, uh, and the downfall of the oil business and then just the general, uh, hurt from COVID that everybody's experiencing in the world. You know, it's kind of been, uh, you know, almost like a triple whammy for the, uh, for the Alberta and Calgary area. That's too bad. Um, and so tell us a little bit of your background. You mentioned a few cities you'd lived in and how you, ended up back in back there sure yep little background uh educated at university of calgary um did an undergrad in finance um and uh, was pretty specific going into university what i wanted to do i wanted to be a trader i had done a lot of research as a young kid about uh, stocks predominantly uh, didn't have really a, a broad view didn't come from a family with too much background in it uh, my dad did introduce me to uh, grain trading and grain futures um, when I was young. Um, so I think that maybe stuck with me a bit. Um, so he would actually hedge the family farm? Yeah, he was looking at it more of a, you know, I think hedging is a bit of a stretch. I think it was more somewhat speculative. Well, well we call it hedulating, right? Yeah. That's yeah. a lot of the farmers do a lot of hedulating. You know, and, and this area in terms of grain production, what Canada is known for, Canada is the largest producer of canola. So when I was, you know, when I was growing up, that was called rapeseed and uh, they flipped over to the canola name. Um, but we are the largest producer of canola in the world. So, um, you know, the original rapeseed contracts on the Winnipeg Exchange, which is now part of ICE, yeah. uh, was, was a pretty big deal. And so that kind of imprinted in me, I think, at a, at a young age. 
went on and did my my undergrad and really it was trying to figure out you know how do i get out of here and and get on some sort of trading desk um and um what happened was uh td bank toronto dominion bank which is now very well known in the us one of the big six canadian banks um, they had what they call the trading development program uh, they came to various schools recruiting for it. Um, my particular business school really produced a lot of people that went into investment banking, management consulting, um, but really investment banking uh, because of the energy business and how dominant it was. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't know if I was the only one that applied, but uh, long story <laughs> short, I got, I got the job, uh, moved to Toronto uh, with TD Bank on the trading development program. Um, you know, and it was one of those lucky opportunities in life. I was exposed at a very young age um, to, you know, a real widespread um, experience of, of capital markets. So the TD trading floor had, you know, fixed income, um, currencies, money markets, basically everything except, except equities. And, and I've, uh, I've heard from other people, would they put you in a rotation where you'd get correct. time at each? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So, so you do a rotation, you, you know, we started in, uh, I think it was late August of 1995, uh, went through the rotation and, and the hope after you go through all these different desks and, and not all the desks, by the way, are, are trading. Some would be on the sales side of that desk, but they give you a balanced experience and, and really they're looking to see what your aptitude is. And, and honestly, you're, you're mostly trying to figure out what your own aptitude is. Yeah. Um, I was one of, of the only undergrads uh, admitted into the program that year. There was 20 some people. Um, and, and honestly, uh, I'll probably never forget it. The, the head of HR uh, looked me in the eye and basically called me the, the wild card. They didn't have a lot of hope for me as an undergrad. They said it was a very <laughs> rigorous program. And um, you know, was I gonna last? Many of, the, many of the other people on the program had, had CFAs, had graduate degrees, had other job experience already, um, very sophisticated, you know, from Toronto, a, a lot of them. Um, you know, I was the kid from Calgary wearing cowboy boots who, you know, I'd, I'd heard of sushi, but I'd never ate a sushi. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so it was, it was a really uh, mind-opening experience. Nonetheless, went through the rotation and, um, I was actually offered um, a, a trading job on the money market desk, trading BAs with banker's acceptance, short term of the curve. Yeah. And, and getting offered a trading job of all the, all the people involved is, is the big win. Like if you get a trading job as opposed to a sales job, you know, you kind of, you kind of did what you'd hoped to do. And so I was offered the money market trading job and I accepted that. A um, couple days later, the, the head of trading, um, came yelling my name across the trading floor. I mean, you know, again, very large bank trading floor, hundreds of people um, told me to get in his office and uh, I was scared whether I was getting fired or not. And, uh, What'd you do? <laughs> well, it was Friday. So I don't know, maybe I don't even remember what I did on Thursday night, but, uh, yeah. but you know, get into his office and he said that um, they had lost their commodity trader um, and um, they needed somebody to, to be on the commodity desk. Uh, which was part of what they called the customized solutions group. So basically proprietary trading. Mm -hmm. And um, would I be interested in, in, you know, trading commodities and specifically trading energies? In your first week? 
Uh, no, so this was this was it's after the rotation. So okay. you know, I was already. I, was I mean, already, your first week of the trader job. Uh, sorry, no. So I'd gone through the whole rotation. I'd gone through the whole rotation through all the different areas. Now it was like it was job time. Yeah, yeah. And, and I hadn't even started on the job that I'd accepted. Oh, the and bankers knew. Yeah. Yeah, I hadn't started the money market job, and and he came along and said, you know, do you do you want to join this team? And you'd be primarily focused on energy derivatives. And, uh, you know, what do you know about oil and gas? <laughs> You're the kid from Calgary. And, uh, you know, I, I just straight up said, you know, not much, but, uh, you know, I can tell you how I look at markets and how I, I you know, I'm developing as a trader. It's a, it's a purely discipline-based risk one to make three type philosophy and, and based on risk ma management and capital allocation and, and um, you know, an emotional type of approach. And he, he basically said, you know, that's, that's the right answer because, Last thing we do need is a you know some rogue trader blowing up this conservative right. Canadian bank. Because the rest so, of the banks risking thirty to make one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so so it was a great opportunity. So I I you know I ended up taking that job and not the money market job and and in a way the rest is kind of history. It it kind of gave me an incredible opportunity um, after forming this base of risk management discipline to be exposed to commodities and energies. Um, and, and if you speak specifically to energies, you know, natural gas, crude oil was already been around a long time and from a trading perspective. Natural yeah. gas was the Bitcoin of the time. Yeah. Um, very sexy to trade, very volatile. Um, and so from a trading perspective, you know, it really was an exciting area to uh, really launch my career. And yeah, I mean, we've written some, was known as the widow maker back then, right? <laughs> yeah, lots of stories. So then you parlayed that into a job with uh, Shell, it was it? Yeah, so I stayed with TD for um, four or five years in, in Toronto. And then uh, Shell, uh, what they called Shell Trading um, Division, um, approached me to come and focus uh, on uh, option trading, uh, primarily, primarily natural gas, again, because it was the volatile market. Um, but all energies um, and uh, come and trade options for them again, primarily from a proprietary market making perspective. Um, so I uh, reported to a Houston based team, but I ended up moving back to Calgary, which was kind of not the plan. I didn't, wasn't really looking to get back to Calgary that quick. Um, but it was a, again, an incredible opportunity. Um, so I went back to Calgary, uh, trade for Shell. You know, and the opportunity really with Shell was was trading the energy markets now with this sort of discipline base that I had um, and trading it in size. And is that, are they trading around their own book or was it like you have a budget and trade within this budget and if yeah, whatever money you make is good? It's a great question. So what they did was the E&P side or the exploration and production side of, of Shell, like, like many oil companies, that, that's a separate business. What they did was they split out a trading and marketing business. And so the idea is to market energy, not only for that, for Shell, but many of these smaller producers that don't have a trading and marketing division. Right. And marketing, for anyone who doesn't know, in the ag and oil space means basically selling the producer's crop or, or storage. Yeah, production. Yep, that's yeah. right. And, and so in that case, that, that's what the entity is set up to do. For, for what I was hired to do was basically to trade the energy markets, but I didn't have clients. So there was nothing really I was providing 
there was a little bit of hedging business that we would we would go after for the other producers, but it really wasn't the focus. The focus was purely proprietary trading um, and trading Shell's capital. Um, I didn't have, uh, you know, in, in the sense that I wasn't a, a physical um, trader, so I didn't have a storage optionality to it. I had to go yeah. create my own optionality with uh, calls and puts. So a lot of that was OTC, some of it, some of it obviously on exchange, um, but we were purely prop traders uh, looking to provide non-correlated returns to uh, the Shell energy trading business. And you you weren't just reading charts and coming up with discretionary trades. You started to build models around it. Yeah. So um, you know, I I really developed two core paths coming out of TD that then developed further at Shell, and that was. Um, trading an option portfolio and primarily being a, a market maker um, around optionality um, in the energy space and then developing systems to to you know really at the end of the day follow trends in in the marketplace and that that started when I was at TD um, there were other people that used systematic trading at TD but they did it in the financial markets and so when I joined the team there at TD it was an opportunity for them and for myself to explore doing that with these volatile energies and that really proved to be the the you know the, the formation of of everything we've done that became auspice because you know we realized quite quickly that you know if you take a system that you trade in in bonds for example or currencies that has a six percent volatility and then you try to trade natural gas that not only has a pick a number 46 percent volatility yeah. and it and it ranges from from 20 to 120 and it can do that very quickly all of a sudden you know you realize there's some limitations to those traditional systems and so my original work at TD that was then expanded at Shell was developing systems and strategies that could um, adapt for lack of a better term to the volatility regime shifts of of the energy markets and in it and you're not you weren't a quant, you didn't have programming background. How, so how'd you bridge that gap? Were you That's a great question. or what? Yeah, so you're right. I'm, I'm not a quant, I'm a finance guy. So, you know, you, you learn to program it. Uh, um, you know, you've got a certain capability. Um, the, the, the next step for me was uh, getting, you know, getting out of spreadsheets and getting to real programming. Well, that was some applications. Um, tools like TradeStation, you know, at, at the outset, yeah. but but the real shift for me personally, and this is where you know, kind of the dawn of Auspice was in the uh, fall of 2000. So I'd been at at Shell for uh, roughly a year. Um, I hired Ken Corner, who has now been my my business partner or trading partner for pushing 20 years. He was an engineer. Uh, he'd been with uh, one of the big uh, utilities. Um, in the hedging side, he understood it. Um, and what he was brought on to do is, is give us quantitative horsepower. You know, I was the experienced sort of trader and at that point and had, had done these things with the bank and Michelle, but was limited in terms of the quantitative side. So I brought Ken on and, uh, you know, again, it's kind of like the rest is history. We've been now pretty much together for 20 years. Yeah. So we, Buried the lead a little bit. So take us from you decided to leave the cushy corporate world and maybe it wasn't so cushy because you had a P&L, right? But uh, yeah. what was that decision like to say, I'm going to go strike it on my own? And 
Well, the first step was I moved down to Houston. I became VP of trading with Shell in, in 2002 uh, post. So this is kind of post energy merchant meltdown, the Dynagies and the Enrons went down to Houston. And, um, you know, it, once you hit VP of trading, it, there was a lot more that was about uh, uh, politics and all the rest versus running your, your proprietary trading desk. And you had a lot of people reporting to you and, and that was fine for a while. Um, but it, it always nagged at me that, you know, here I went to business school, but could I really run a business? And, and that was kind of the driver. It wasn't so much, you know, I got to step out on my own, um, but it was, could I run a business and, and could we develop something different than just, you know, here's our one trick pony strategy, so to speak. So we just, you know, I came back to Calgary and, um, you know, at this point, you know, kid number two is on the way and, said, if I don't, if I don't do it now, I probably never will. And, yeah. um, just, just kind of went for it. Um, in, in 2005 took the year to figure it out and how we were going to go about this and, and, um, had the good fortune of a, actually a neighbor that is literally across the street from me here at our lake house, um, offered to be my first investor. He's a successful oilman. And, um, right. and, and, you know, gave us some office space and it started very simply two men and a dog. Yeah. <laughs> and the dog. Yeah. Uh, going back for a second, you mentioned something I'm interested in. If, if, so when you were trading with Shell, were you going trading with and against Enron and those guys? Absolutely. So give us a little, what was that crazy times? Give us some stories on the Enron, how they were approaching yeah. the markets and whether it was cool or scary or what? Uh, you know, it was, I guess, cool more than scary. I mean, they were a very large entity. They were embracing technology. If you remember, they created what was called Enron Online. Yeah. So this is one of the first trading platforms where you could actually trade instead of picking up the phone and, and, and talking to an interdealer broker, an OTC broker. Um, and at that time, you know, ICE, the Intercontinental Exchange, was still in its infancy. Um, and uh, Enron Online was kind of the, the place to trade. Uh, Enron was trading everything and they were trading it big. And we had people that had left our shop and I had friends from school that ended up going to Enron. And, and the peculiar thing to me was always, how is it that every trader I know at Enron, how is it that they're all making the most money? Yeah, <laughs> couldn't right. Quite, couldn't quite figure it out. And, and I, I kind of have a philosophy in life you're saying like they were all successful equally when in a normal trading shop you're gonna have one huge winner a normal guy and one loser yeah and so to me you know even just philosophically in life if it's ever too good to be true it probably is and it sends up red flags for me and and so enron sent up a bunch of red flags for me um it didn't mean you didn't trade with them in fact uh you know shell had like every everybody had significant exposure with enron it would be quite difficult at that time to to not um, but, uh, yeah, they were a big shop and, um, uh, somebody you traded against, they had a lot of might. Um, I took a, you know, again, I, I came out of a, a very conservative philosophy in terms of money management coming out of the TD trading development program. Um, you know, I wasn't a big bat swinger. Um, you know, it was about controlled risk and, and discipline and, and creating rigor around what we were doing and a lot of rules based stuff. Um, and, um, yeah, they, they, was just, yeah. they were just another counterparty you could trade with. All right. I wanted some better story that they hung you on a 10 million lot or something like that. But we'll 
We'll take it. I, I, what I will tell you is that when, when Enron went down, um, one of the roles that I filled, um, and it was just before I moved to Texas, because it was the fall of 2001, um, that 9-11 had just happened, as you know, and, and uh, when Enron collapsed, one of the roles I was offered or given to take on was, was unwinding the positions with Enron. So obviously, you know, under ISDA, the International Swap Dealers Association, uh, rules you you could unwind things but you had to follow certain protocols and and I was given that role to basically unwind a large portion of the shell exposure to Enron and follow this protocol um, so they basically set up a separate they were separate, in essence bankrupt and the counterparty was gone but there were right. still assets there so correct so so you had to go through a process they set up a mini trading desk and uh, put a lawyer beside me and and you had to follow certain protocols and net net shell came out positive but uh, you know again it was a crazy time and most of the stories that i could tell you about enron and the people aren't probably appropriate for this podcast oh for sure um <laughs> the my favorite story of all that the uh when amaranth went bust and citadel had pre right they agreed to buy their book but before they signed they had already offset all the positions so they just as soon as they signed they made a billion dollars on the on the, on the shuffle know, yeah on the, on, shuffle, the, right? on the shuffle and and yeah i mean there was there was a lot of that going on at that time i mean it, because again it wasn't just enron dynagy um yeah. went after enron and then they went down so i mean it was it was a real mess having said all of that you know you got to remember the time frame 9-11 had just happened um great tragedy enormous volatility then you had the merchant energy meltdown within months the volatility in the marketplace was enormous and and that created enormous opportunities okay so let's pivot you're talking about the models a little bit let's get into your uh what you guys your main strategies at auspice uh some of the other stuff you've been doing with auspice uh, from the strategy standpoint so sure have so, you do the elevator pitch then we can yeah <laughs> I mean, at, at the core, we are, you know, we are, a, we're a CTA, we are a trend follower philosophically. I, I'll preface that by saying, when I left TD, and even when I left Shell, really being a CTA didn't mean a darn thing to me. Yeah. You know, we were a quantitative trader, we used futures, we used over-the-counter derivatives. Um, we were very rules-based and getting more and more rules-based in our decision processes. Um, but being a CTA really didn't mean too much. I'd read a little bit about some famous CTAs, um, but I didn't identify as one. Yeah, I was uh, going to ask that earlier. If when you were coming up with these rules and models, were you aware of of uh, John Henry and Winton and what they were doing, or you would kind of yeah. come to your own conclusions? Really come to our own conclusions. I mean, sources we were using were were quantitative trading related but unrelated to the cta proper space for sure yeah um you know That's as i said i I'd, I'd read about the turtles and and jerry parker at some point along this journey but you know again it, it I'd never really identified with it when i made the decision to go off on my own and, and ken joined me um you know, it was really, let's take our skill set and, and what we've done with the institutions 
and uh, what's really expanded beyond our focus in in specifically energies and commodities, but you know again with a heavy weight to energies, because what we discovered in our testing and and our analysis was that the discipline we were putting around trading in the energy space was every bit as valid in other markets. Yeah, we were trading the thing that was most volatile, and that was really even TD's philosophy is like, look, if, if you're going to trade the energy markets, which is great you better be disciplined right so if you can figure out natural gas euro dollars is a walk in the park this was the philosophy and so we started testing you know other markets uh, shell wasn't interested in in participating in those other markets it was it was very focused um you know and at the end of the day we decided you know let's go hang our shingle as i said i i had a neighbor here at our lake house that had encouraged me to do so and said he'd be kind of client one and and introduced me to client two and and they would introduce me to a high net worth group that would uh, kind of be the start. And, um, you know, that, that's how it started. We started with the philosophy of, of a single uh, product, which is what we call auspice diversified. So it's a, um, it even started much simpler. It was a, a single CTA strategy uh, really based on, um, we just used what we'd, we'd been using at Shell, um, but just more markets, you know, diversify across, uh, all the commodities and, and financials. Um, the, one of the differences being with a heavier commodity weighting than a lot of our peers, if you will, or what we now believe are our peers. Yeah, and for sure these days, that's one of the parts that set you apart, but that was in the DNA right back from the beginning? Right from the beginning. Good. It, yeah. it the, commodity, the commodity background, we were very comfortable with it. And you know, it's, it's, it's the same explanation I give clients and prospects all the time. And, and people we're talking to in general is that, you know, if you want real diversification, you want to create non-correlated returns and you want to create crisis alpha, um, you want positive skew divergent returns, the commodity markets uh, provide you that, especially if you're agnostic in terms of direction. Um, so um, it's always been a commodity tilt uh, for but us. I would argue the other side of that, that a lot of guys designed their models and came up with, hey, we're going to be overweight bonds and some things that test a little better yep. on a trend following model, right? If you, a lot of these commodities don't test well at all, which when you mentioned Jerry Parker, when we had him on the pot, he's like, yeah, but you've got to keep them in there because you never know when that next outlier happens. That's exactly right. And, you know, he talked about palladium, for example. And yeah. so it you seems know, like you're saying it's as much philosophy as it is the testing. Yep, no, for sure. I mean, look, lots of things test well. I, I did some work for a client the other day who wanted sort of this basket portfolio put together and, you know, with this weighting and in, in fixed income and use this benchmark index. Well, sure, that, that looks great. I think it had a eight point something percent annualized return for the last, uh, you know, 20, 20 years. Yeah. You're not going to get 8% annualized out of, out of fixed income for the next 20 years. And it's mathematically not going to happen. And my dad's favorite line that he's told me is, "You nobody ever lost money on a spreadsheet." Yeah, that's right. You're yeah, doing that test. Of course, you're going to come up with a good number. Yeah, yeah there's no no bad back test. But you know, again, everybody will give you the pitch. I mean, you, you take a we try to take a very disciplined approach to back tests and what we learn out of it. But commodities have always been been part of that, and for the simple reason is, you know, the diversification within the commodity. Uh, landscape is so massive. The diversification even within subsectors like grains or energies is massive. Natural gas and crude oil are not the same thing. And, and so 
you know, there was just no doubt about it. We were going to stay tilted towards commodities, and and uh, you know, and, and there's there's a other side to that, you know, that that knife edge, and that is, you know, commodities have been uh, a tough place to be for the last decade. First decade in my career, they were they were the place to be, um, you know, post dot com till 2010, 2011, and then the last 10 years has been very tough. Not just from a trend perspective, they've been quiet. In general, yeah, it lacked volatility. In general, it's a generalization, but it's been a tough place to be, and we've stayed, you know, generally commodity tilted. We've had ever a debate about about changing the weightings, and and you know, then along comes uh, late 2018, and and you know, strategies we had outperformed, and we can attribute that to commodity volatility, um, and you know, here again in in the beginning of uh, 2020. Yeah, and in 14, probably, with, with the crude move as well? Um, Absolutely, yeah. The volatility, and, and you know, I mean, you can go through all these different time frames of, of sort of opportunity, if you will. But, you know, those, those are the time frames. If you look at returns in 2014, um, CTAs did well. We did exceptionally well because of that commodity weighting and that opportunity that, uh, that we that we have given ourselves, if you will. Now, again, you know, there's, there's always a, a drawback. The drawback is that in, in a year like 2019, um, we underperformed and, um, you know, kind of gets you concerned like, you know, any, any money manager. Yeah. And, and we talk to our clients and, and they say, look, you know, we, we just expect you to show, we hope you show up at those key times. We really don't need your help in 2019 when the stock market's up 20%. Yeah, exactly. Lots of beta. Yeah. Um, what? So, what is that weighting, and what do you see as your peers' typical weighting? So, it's fifty-fifty for you guys, and other places, it's seventy-five, twenty-five. Or do you have any well, idea? I mean, even you know, looking at our deck on our main fund here, our our, our long-standing fund, Auspice Diversified, as we left uh, twenty nineteen, uh, we had seventy-one percent commodity exposure versus financials. Um, it's been, you know, I think more typical. That's based on on the positions that were you were in, or on like the actual weighting and the risk budget that you'll assign. Uh, if you look at it from a risk perspective, like yeah. we look at everything from a risk perspective and say, where's the risk? The risk is right now seventy percent commodity type thing, and I think a typical for us would be, you know, sort of sixty percent to two thirds. Mm -hmm. um, you know, definitely over fifty percent. Um, but it can be even higher. We had periods this spring um, when things started to move where we were, you know, we were high 80s. Um, and then even, you know, as, as, as trends changed, back that off to, you know, again, sub 50. So, so it, it's dynamic. And to be clear, it's not a forced, uh, it's not a forced thing. You know, we, we, we get on trends that are trending. I'm not, I'm not getting on things that, that are mulling yeah. about. So, so if it's only currencies and fixed income trend trending do you become 60 40 that way it, it's entirely possible but what i'm saying is it's rare yeah it's, we don't force the budget so to speak but you know this is generally the way it's tilt this is what we've set up to be the opportunity set and because that diversity exists in the commodity space there's generally something trending and so you're how are you achieving that by by having less financial markets in the portfolio uh well there, there's definitely less um but there's also just a, a you know less weighting sort of a less of an 
opportunity, even if we had all the financials on, um, there's less of a weight and less of an opportunity for those. For those and so that would be like, I'm going to risk one half of 1% on a commodity trade and a quarter of 1% on a financials trade? Yeah, we, the way we look at it is, is we basically break the world down into seven sectors. There's four commodity sectors, energies, metals, grains, and softs. And then you've got currencies, equities, and, um, and bonds and fixed income. And so even if everything was on, you're four to equal weighting, yeah, you're four sevenths of the risk to commodities. And I mean, that's kind of a little bit of a high in the sky explanation, but yeah, yeah, it gives it. you an idea of, of the sort of the way we look at the budget. And then you don't have concerns on some of these softs markets that there's not enough liquidity or volume or things of that nature? We, we absolutely do have those concerns. And so, you know, part of our, part of our risk approach and capital allocation approach depends on the liquidity of that marketplace. So we do have filters that in certain markets, we can't, you know, you can't trade, um, you can't trade uh, coffee at the same level as you can trade crude oil. Right, right. Um, all right, so that's the main diversified program. So that's been the yep. same program since so far? Yeah, I mean, same at, at a whole. I mean, it has evolved. And, and what, I, what I'd say in terms of the evolution of it is, is we've, it's become basically the melting pot of all of our strategies in general. So it, it, its core is, is trend following uh, strategies of various uh, types. Um, so it's, it's after trend, it's after momentum. Um, then within that, we do something that's kind of one of our newer strategies, if you will, it's been in auspice diversified, but we split it out. That's called auspice short term. Um, and it's something we, you know, we developed in, uh, out of that genesis, out of shell, um, where we're actually doing kind of the opposite of trend following. We're actually trying to take advantage of when markets pivot from a trend up to a trend down. It's that transition. And um, so it, it captures these patterns and, and, and reversals, um, you know, at a time when trend following is going to falter. You know, trend's good until it bends in the end. Yeah. This strategy is, is intended to target the bend in the end. Um, so that's like mean reversion? Well, look, there, there's definitely elements of mean reversion in it. Uh, what I would say in terms of sort of, you know, an explanation is, is it exploits, you know, it exploits the volatility using a mean reversion type aspect in a short-term approach, um, short-term momentum approach in a in a very tactical way so yeah it's, is look, it, it's looking for this setup where there's been a momentum one way that momentum has has ceased and it looks like it's going to go the other way and so we go the other way we, we, we we're looking for that reversion back um now to that be clear, on an hourly basis like what's the time for looking at for so, that momentum yeah so so we're looking at what was that momentum yesterday for example what did yesterday's action tell us and what is today doing? Is it doing something different? And then if it sets up in a certain way, it shows us the criteria that we're looking for, then we'll, we'll take that trade in that opposite direction. So yesterday's momentum was up, today's showing uh, aspects of momentum the other way, we'll go short, and then we buy back in that position by the end of the day, it goes home flat every day. And then when you, and wasn't that only on the energies for a bit? That's correct. Yeah, and, and only really for the reason of that was our experience base. We had 
we have a lot of data, tick data in the energy space going back uh, forever. Um, and because of it, you know, like any other short-term strategy, execution is everything. Uh, it's got a capacity, um, whereas trend following doesn't really. Um, you're, you're doing something in a very uh, short time frame. Um, yeah, we go home square and, and the energy markets was where we cut our teeth. And, yeah. uh, and, it, and I'd argue, well. I don't know why you could tell us why, like that it's more apt oil prices, especially it's more apt to kind of not push too far one way or the other, maybe because of all the commercials involved or, or what, but a lot of different motivations. I mean, what I would say is in, in general, we can all understand that the energy markets, you know, it's a generic statement, but the energy markets operate at a higher volatility. And so if they're operating at a higher volatility, you've got more opportunities for this type of behavior. Right, right, right. Um, and so that's a standalone program and part of the diversified. Correct. And in the diversified, it can kind of serve as a, you're kind of lowering position levels at time. If you're long energy and you see some of these short-term trades short, you can kind of flatten your exposure for a, a day or two. In terms of the trend following exposure? Yeah. They they operate in in you know they operate separately. Right, what I'm saying as as a portfolio can have some offsetting at absolutely. times characteristics. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. yeah, yeah. That's that's exactly right. And you know why does that philosophy or why you know why do we believe in it? Why do, why do we think it works? You know, I I think we kind of think of the markets having really uh, three types of regimes. So you know this is how I describe it. You know, you got markets that are trending. Great, you've got distinct long-term moves in a clear direction. There's all sorts of tools uh, to, to, to capture that. Trend yeah. following is not up for debate here, at least not on this podcast. Um, and, and then the, the next type of regime would be like a range-bound market. The trends occur on much smaller time scales within medium-term ranges. That's where trend following generally performs poorly and, and tends to falter. Um, it may get stopped out. This was a, a large part of the discussion we had you know, with our friend Jerry. Um, yeah. But short term can do very well in that sort of range bound market. The market's not really going very far. It's just stuck in a range. And that's where we were looking for something to offset the trend following aspect where it's, it's going to, you know, have a little trouble. So, you know, one's good for trend, one's good for the short term strategy. That's a nice offset. The toughest of the market is, is the one that's really hard for both. And that is you've got this directionless, uh, market, you've got trades within previous short-term ranges. Trend following uh, really goes nowhere, um, and and typically this short-term reversal strategy can also struggle because you've got reversals in in momentum that just don't go anywhere. It just keeps you know. Imagine you had like in candlestick terms, you had just dojis every day. It goes yeah. one way, it comes back. It goes bottom, it comes back. And, and that's a tough environment for anybody to trade. So right, and those, no, the short term wouldn't capture those because there's no setup of the momentum. Very tough to do. I mean, that, and that's really where the risk management layer comes in. So, you know, you, you, like anything, you've got to give it room to, to make returns. Uh, you got to take some risk. Um, but we're still, running, we're still running stops so that, you know, you don't get uh, just chopped right up. Yeah, and it feels, it feels like that scenario has been prevalent for most of the last five years across financials, across different things for short term, especially because some of the more famous short term have, have not done so well. That's right. Yeah. And so, 
you know, when we look at the environment and, you know, people keep asking and, and it's not that it's, it, uh, it's going to change tomorrow, but, you know, the energy markets, even at times, and we've gone through periods in the last five years, by the way, that, that, you know, the energy markets just tightened up and, and weren't going anywhere. We're in one of those spaces right now. Um, but if it's, you know, again, if it's, if it's got enough range bound activity, as opposed to just sideways chop, it's still an opportunity for us. And, and you know, arguably we're, we've been in that type of a zone um, since crude dropped post COVID and then has been in this sort of $40 area through, you know, call it May, June, July, that sort of back and forth range bound uh, uh, activity has been good for the short term strategy. Good. Um, all right, so we got diversified, we got short term. What anything else in the quiver? Yeah, uh, well, the one thing about Auspice is we're we're a pretty busy shop. Um, you know what we intended to do is create a product street, so we suite. So we started with a, a trend following approach that's continued to evolve. We've got Auspice short term. Um, one of the areas we went into over a decade ago was creating some what we call liquid alt strategies. So lower cost strategies that, that at the time our philosophy was to make available for ETFs and some retail vehicles. Um, we were early being a decade ago, it seemed, um, you know, managed futures ETFs and, and that type of thing, you know, haven't, haven't really been all that embraced. Um, what came out of it for us with these, what we call liquid alt strategies. So we've got two, one's called manage, the managed futures index, one's called broad commodity. Um, those strategies have now been uh, picked up by some of the institutions who were looking for a, you know, it's, it's not the alpha, it's not beta, it's something in the middle type philosophy. Um, they were looking for a low cost uh, CTA solution or a low cost, low cost uh, broad commodity solution. They didn't just want to buy GSCI and, and be long and wrong. They wanted some, some tactical risk management type approach. Um, so that liquid alt space has been a, a good area for us as a business. And so you're, um, you're created the model, wrapped it into an index, then you license the index out to different firms who want to create a ETF that's right. mutual fund. That's, that's exactly right. So that's how we, that's how we um, partnered with one of the uh, ETF and mutual fund companies in New York. Uh, they've got an ETF out on NYSC, the COM ETF, um, COM ETF that is, is basically just tracks our broad commodity, our long flat commodity index. And, and, and really what it is, 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 is the, if you think about it, it's a CTA approach. Yeah. It's a trend following approach on commodities only, and it Makes goes long. long or flat. That's right, that's right. So it's, it's a more tactical risk management oriented approach to being long the upside in commodities. Which should be, should in theory capture if there's inflationary pressures or whatnot should capture the big up move and you're not going to slog through like the past 10 years um, that's, right. that's right well i mean at the end of the day like the one thing we have to accept is that commodities in general have had a poor decade yeah so, you know in general if there's no com if commodities are going down you know this strategy is long or flat so it's still gonna it's still gonna you know suffer in, in one sense Right. It's not going to have the same downside as, as you know, a, a long only Bloomberg commodity or GSC. Right. It should have less downside. That's what what have you experienced with clients and with the what this group's telling you of people used to have, right, I need 5 or 10% in commodities. Uh, it seems like that's been taken out on, in body bags, right, of that strategy institutionally wide. 
Um, you think I mean, that still exists out there? Or are people smartening up and saying, hey, I need a dynamic commodity allocation? Yeah. So, so the quick answer is the latter is, is you know, it, it's been a very tough space. And you're, you're right, a lot of people, especially retail, has written that off, um, which, you know, you can understand. Um, what we're seeing is more and more institutional players uh, and larger retails, so say large independent RIAs, uh, starting to look for that allocation. And, you know, it's not going to be a massive part of their portfolio. Like maybe it's, maybe it's 5%. Yeah, uh, but uh, you know, again, if you're going to go into the commodity space and that's not your expertise, you, know, you can go. You can go pick a commodity and and bet on one thing. And you know, we surely don't advocate for that. We 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 believe in a tactical risk managed approach, and and we know trend and momentum works. Um, so, how, you know, how does it spread the market exposure? So, a lot of these commodity indices are really just crude oil indices in disguise, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, so, so our broad commodity is, is a, a basket of the 12 uh, most liquid commodities, the things you know, you'd expect. Um, and again, we're not long all of those 12. If, if a commodity market shows upward momentum properties, we'll be long that commodity, but we could be in cash for the rest of the portfolio. So they long gold right now? That's right. So, you know, yeah. this year started where, you know, gold was the only thing. We actually have currently in that strategy, just out of interest, um, about 75% uh, of the opportunities are on. So it's been a big shift since COVID hit. Yeah, wow. Um, cool, and then I'll, any other strategies we wanna talk about? Yeah, the, the only other one I would uh, point out, so we are launching a new strategy, um, just went through the legal, it should be launching in early October, uh, called the Auspice One Fund. And really, what is it? It's, it's basically a full CTA overlay on a traditional, um, you know, a traditional portfolio of fixed income and, and, and equities. And, and even on the fixed income and equities side, um, using some passive approaches, um, but in general, accepting that we understand something about trend and momentum and having that overlay um, where you've where you're you know, overlaying trend and momentum on that, on that traditional portfolio. And, and really, why are we doing that? Well, because that's how we manage our own money. We, you know, we all want equity upside. We don't want the big crash. Um, and uh, you know, on top of that, we, 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 we know and we believe that there's sort of no better combination of sort of a traditional portfolio, and especially even just equities and, and a CTA approach. And, and the benefit is, uh, you know, for auspice as an example, we run a margin to equity that's less than 10%. So what do we do with the rest of that capital? Well, we can take that capital and, and, and generate a traditional portfolio and put it all in one solution. And that just came about from various investors coming along, um, not the institutions, they go and do this exact same thing themselves, yeah. but whether it's a high net worth individual, um, any retail person, um, family offices saying, you know, we want kind of, we want that downside protection of CTA, but we also want to participate on the upside. We want to smooth it out. So why don't we just put that all in one thing? So we call it the Auspice One Fund. It's uh, about to launch uh, first in Canada, and then uh, you know, hopefully we'll find the right distribution partner in the U.S. And that'll be managed accounts could do it as well. Uh, at this time, it's in a uh, private placement commingled fund structure. Um, but 
you know, theoretically, yes. Yeah. Um, with those, you know, always, you know, and you and I have talked a lot about these things with those caveats in terms of what's the right size for that managed account. Yeah. That you can properly diversify. But that that whole concept is interesting, right? That's really taken off in the last two three years. Of, yeah. Uh, you know, and it used to be I was on the other side of like you can do the equity piece on your own. You don't need me to do that. Like exactly. I'm providing this alpha and this diversification as a trend follower, just add that on in the size yeah. that best fits you. Yeah. It seems like it's pivoted to, okay, if you can't figure that out or if you're too, yeah. right, we'll just package it and give you what that's you right. want. Like we'll start, stop swimming upstream and here you go. That, that's right. And, and so interesting that you brought it up that way in terms of the equity exposure. One thing I didn't mention is that our liquid alt CTA approach, so that again, we've had it in retail products, um, some of the institutions, uh, we run managed accounts for them, does not include equity indices. So that's one of the differentiators oh, from yeah. hospice diversified as a CTA and what we're doing in the liquid alt strategy space. And, and the reason is quite simple. When we first developed that index strategy, we call it for the retail space, say for ETFs, we recognize that the retail investor does not need more equity exposure. Right. Just again, take out that thing that reduces that, it really reduces that risk that equity is on a big trend and then it turns around and, and our equity trend is going to be a drag on that portfolio. Just take it out. And then if you get beyond the retail investor and you look at the institutional investor, they've already got their favorite ways to get equity exposure in a very cost effective way. Yeah, and so, when you're usually in those meetings, that's one of their first questions, right? Of like, how much equity exposure am I getting? And they're trying to do that math of whether it's worth yeah. it for the rest. That's right. And so we recognize that. And that, again, is one of the differentiators between sort of our flagship CTA strategy and these liquid alt approaches. Um, yeah, so that, that's really the product suite. We've got our main fund. We've got these liquid alt approaches in CTA and, and broad commodity. We've got our short-term niche strategy and then the pending auspice one fund. So switching gears a little bit, I've always been impressed with you personally from afar in comparison to a lot of other CTAs who are just like, they kind of feel like if I build the model, they will come. <laughs> seems like maybe it's your business background before you got into the trading desk, but it seems like you've had at least as much focus on building the business and providing products that people need. Like talk to me a little bit about how you view that and why you've, you know, how you kind of view the two sides of the, the business side of it and the trading side of it. Yeah, I mean, it's, I, I appreciate it. It's almost like a compliment there, but, but. Yeah, you know, that's as good as it gets for me. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I would say is that, look, I, I mean, part of the reason we're doing things the way we are doing them now is because we made lots of mistakes. And I surely didn't come out of, of the institutional trading world, um, you know, one with a big Rolodex. I wasn't from the CTA space. Part of this quest, as I, as I explained, was could I run a business? Um, and what I discovered about myself, and I think what Ken and I discovered about ourselves and what we discovered with Auspice was, there's kind of two things that get us up every morning. One, can we do something interesting and innovative and something slightly different, right? Like, don't just follow the easy path and you know, the world's gonna continue to change. So can we develop something different and unique? And, you know, part of our history we didn't get into. I mean, we, we actually launched the, you know, one of the first natural gas ETFs. We did that in Canada based on physical gas, or if you back when gas was all the rage, um, you know, you opened a lot of doors. Canadian oil ETF, right? 
that shut down. We, that's right. We did have a Canadian oil ETF. And again, you know, given everything that happened through COVID, the economics didn't make sense. ETFs are a narrow margin business anyway. Um, but, you know, can we do something unique and different? And, and is it going to make us a ton of money? Well, it, I'm not sure. Like an ETF generally doesn't, okay? Yeah. But what does it do? It opens doors. And when we went down the retail ETFs path with first Claymore and then Horizon ETFs and now with Direction in New York, what it did was it broadened our horizon. It broadened our understanding of the business. It broadened our client base uh, sort of by accident. And, and so from a business perspective, you started to get it. So first thing is do something interesting and innovative. It leads to other things. And then the second thing, really me discovering about myself, is, is the relationship side. You know, as managers, we all have numbers and you got periods when you perform and periods when you don't and periods hopefully when you outperform your peers at the right time. Um, but when it really comes down to the decision, I really believe a lot of that's gonna be based on relationship. And, and going down this path and running my own business has been the most enriching part of my life in terms of meeting great people uh, if you're just sitting on a proprietary trading desk at a bank or at an energy company, your existence is fairly narrow. You're, you're yeah. there to do one thing and that's generate returns and get your bonus and go home. And, and that's fine. It just wasn't for me. I wanted to meet great and interesting people. I wanted to do something that hadn't been done before. Um, and, and that's really the quest that Ken and I have been on. Um, and I think really the one that, you know, despite being a boutique size firm and we've been around quite a while, it's really what led, which is probably one of your next questions to the strategic partnership we just formed. Yeah. And I'll just add to that. It seems like you have this a willingness to fail too, right? Of like, and not be embarrassed for lack of a better word of like, what the heck are they doing yeah. running some oil, Canadian oil ETF, stick to your knitting, right. Right. stay in your lane, all those derogatory statements of like, yeah. Hey, no, we're, we're trying to innovate. We're trying to be a, a, a real shop here. Yeah. I mean, look, you, you got to take shots. It's, it's no different than, you know, how we trade as, as CTAs. It's a risk management effort. You know, we're, we're wrong more than we're right, but we pay winners to losers. You've got to be willing to try things and, and that expands your network. Um, you know, despite our Canadian crude oil ETF, not doing exactly what we wanted. Um, you know, it, it opened so many doors uh, for us that we could have a whole other conversation on. Yeah. Uh, we, what, learned, we learned a lot. Is it a distinct process within the firm or is it just kind of as these things come up and you weigh, let's go for it or not go for it? Or you have a process of like, okay, what's our innovative product next year going to be? We are, we are long ideas and, yeah. and short time in people. Yeah. Like and, the rest and, of us. Yeah. So, so, you know, we're, we're creative guys, I guess, at the end of the day, um, you know, Ken and I always joke, like both of us come from a bit of a musical background and, and uh, you know, it just seems we're always uh, trying to find some way to put a square peg in a round hole. And, and, you know, that, that's truly what drives us. And, and, you know, once you get a taste of, you know, sort of the fun around an innovative thing, um, you know, you, you kind of look for that. And so you're always throwing ideas at, at the wall and sometimes they're right in front of you. You know, I, 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 you know, I don't have many regrets in life, but one of them is that, you know, we didn't launch the auspice one fund 15 years ago when we started or even 10 years ago. Yeah. We, we should have put, we should have put that together and, and instead of doing it in our own portfolios, it's like, why didn't we offer this out? 
But um, I think I think for some unspoken rule at the time it was like, no, you just do what you're good at. It's like stay in your lane. Yeah. Right? You know, but like, well, in your lane and, and you know, you, you do the hard to, part and let the others do the easy part. Well, exactly. Like, well, you, you know, you, you, you try to uh, attract and we don't spend too much time focused on this anymore, but you try to attract um, investment advisors. Um, you know, they, they've got that part. They're missing these divergent, non-correlated, yeah. positively skewed returns. We'll focus on this. The problem is, especially in the retail space, is what we do, the return stream being, you know, divergent, is it, it's a bit inhuman, right? Remember that equity returns and convergent returns, you know, they grind higher in this low volatility way and every once in a while they, they correct and everybody can rationalize it and come up with a reason and you can all forgive it. We do the opposite, right? We grind along and people are saying, you know, okay, are you guys ever going to make a return? You're just going sideways and you're pulling back. And then every once in a while you pop and it's, it's somewhat inhuman. Okay, yeah, so I wrote, no, I wrote a paper, it must have been 10 years ago, when we should have done the same thing. And I was called, yeah. like, uh, the problem with alpha is it lacks beta. Yeah. Right? Somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but that is the problem. Like, if they're in the flat period, they don't have anyone to talk to at the cocktail party or what's going on and commiserate. <laughs> it's just like, yeah. I'm yeah. just being this thing on my statement every day. It's pissing me off. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, as far as an innovation... Uh, you know, look, and, and we surely didn't invent the wheel. We've seen some other people doing similar things, um, you know, generally doing things because we think they're right, not trying to copy anybody by any stretch, yeah. but we're going to put our own twist on things. And, um, and so, know. sorry, cause you, um, you mentioned being short on people and time. Yeah. Yeah. You just did a announcement recently, like you added some people in time, maybe perhaps. Well, we, we haven't added, we ha interestingly, we haven't added people yet. Um, I don't know if you can add time either, but. Yeah, I don't think you can add time. What you can do is, is gain some other teammates, if you will. And so what we did is um, there's a press release out in early July. We formed a strategic partnership um, with a group called Walter Global Asset Management or WGAM. They are a Montreal based private equity firm. Uh, it's run by a very experienced, uh, highly respected individual um, who has uh, financial, his whole career has been in the financial space. He's on the board of, of one of the largest pensions, very respected individual. What, uh, can we share his name or what's his name? Uh, his name is Sylvain Brasso. It's, 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 no, it's no secret. Yeah. Uh, and Sylvain and I got to know each other over the last couple of years. Uh, I have a ton of respect for his philosophy and his business experience. Uh, and they started taking uh, positions and that, that made sense to them. Um, and really, we were looking for a partner that brought something to the table we didn't have. So again, well, we're, we're long ideas and we're, we're short people, so to speak. So you know, who are those right people? Well, what he did was he developed a, a very uh, strong team uh, with um, uh, business development people that, uh, that have a, a really deep background, um, not only, not specifically in the CTA space, but in the alt space, um, in the asset management space in general. Um, and what it did for us beyond, or what it has potential to do for us beyond just gaining access to that type of a person is it's a specific geographic zone that they have expertise and that is in the province of Quebec in Canada. Mm -hmm. So the province of Quebec in Canada is, is distinct in many ways, um, not only the French speaking, but 
there are a significant amount of large institutions. Um, Parlez-vous français? Uh, on peut, <laughs> mean, a tiny bit. Yeah, uh, yeah. But Me no, too. I mean, that's, that's unfortunately not my strength. And so, you know, here we, we basically broadened our scope. It's not just the Canadian thing by any stretch, but could we, uh, could we essentially expand our global relationships, those in Canada, those in North America beyond, um, while still respecting what we do at Auspice as a manager? So it, uh, the idea is to help you scale um, right. both in Canada and elsewhere. Yeah, I mean, and, and I think that, you know, CTAs in general are like this. Um, you know, our capacity at Auspice and our scalability as a business is significant. And, and uh, you know, we've been uh, at a certain level for a while and continue to develop products and we have capacity. And you know how do we how do we broaden our reach in terms of of, of clients and relationships? Yeah, and we've even put you in front of uh, institutional investors before, and we're like, here's an emerging manager, and they're like, he's they've been around for 15 years. I'm like, well, but it depends yeah. on your definition from an asset. Right. Or this new program has a short track record, so that's there's always that weirdness. So that's interesting because you know I've debated this with many people. I've even talked at some of the conferences and said this. Look, in my view, an emerging manager is, is isn't one that's you know been around for six months or a year or two years. In my view, an emerging manager is is one that has the ability to get to the next level and really uh, bust out and has the capacity and and maybe has the skill set and the track record to get to the next level to yeah. really emerge from where they are. And, and so, you know, part of our, our yeah, I think it needs to be separated from startup manager, right? There's like right. startup managers, then that's right. I'm, exactly. Emerging. Yeah. You know, yeah. We could spend a whole week on that. Um, and then, so what did it look like? Did they, uh, it's a straight partnership or they took ownership or you still have control? What are all those pieces? Yeah. So they, uh, you know, it's in the press release. So again, this is public information. Yeah. We'll put it out on the show notes as well. They took uh, a minority stake in, in Auspice, a significant minority stake. Um, as I said, the largest shareholder in Auspice remains uh, myself and Ken Corner. Um, we are every bit and more motivated than we've ever been. Um, you know, this just opens uh, doors and different doors and different places with different people. And um, again, they're a very respected and experienced team. And um, so it's been a different, let me say, it's been a, it's been a different year. Um, you know, starting last fall, we started the due diligence process with them, um, really got going around Christmas time from a term sheet perspective, um, had some targets in terms of when to close this spring and then COVID hit. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it definitely brought a... Congrats uh, on wrapping it up during COVID. That had to be <laughs> yeah. tough. It was. It was. Uh, you couldn't have, you know, I wouldn't have been able to get my head around that, you know, this was going to be completed during COVID. We're going to be working externally, you know, most of the time. Um, we're going to be doing a deal with a, a company from across uh, the country um, and, and uh, we're going to get it done. And uh, it took longer, um, but I would say not by any fault of of the WGAM group or or ourselves at Auspice, the challenge we found through the whole process, and you know, if, if we were trying to close in April or May, it ended up happening basically right at the beginning of July. 
um, end of June. And uh, the challenge actually was when you go through these processes, as you know, you've got a lot of accountants, you've got a lot of lawyers involved, everybody's remote. Everything just takes a little longer because of that aspect, yeah. especially from a legal perspective. Uh, due diligence takes a bit longer, you know, just any of the legal paperwork. So it took longer, um, but, you know, we're, we're absolutely ecstatic about it. I'm extremely proud to have them as partners. And, and you know, at the end of the day, um, you know, we think this is kind of the recognition that, that we've done things interesting. We built a great client base of institutional clients. Um, you know, now can we get the company to the next level? Yeah. Well, congrats. I'll, I'll say I knew you when. Um, <laughs> so switching gears and we'll wrap up. I wanted to just, given your oil background and you there in oil country, just get your quick thoughts on, you know, what happened when we went negative in oil, the huge rally back flat now i know it's not necessarily in your models but yeah your your belief your personal thoughts on where oil's been and where it's going well you know it gets back to one of the reasons that i focused on energies at the beginning and even specifically natural gas because it was always you know these are commodities that if you can imagine it you know if you can create the craziest scenario you know it can probably happen and i remember natural gas going to you know the teens in terms of pricing and then you know almost going back to zero right yeah and and you know that's been in in our in our thoughts and in our experience um you know since we started in this business and uh so the fact that oil could go negative no that never got talked about but when you come from an energy trading background so forgetting futures for a second but actual physical energy um lots of energies especially natural gas have traded to zero and to negative that's 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 not exactly a new concept mm -hmm. and so the the ability for that to happen um it was for some of the retail trading platforms it turns out absolutely and 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 some of them were not designed to you know there's all sorts of things that have happened because of that they weren't designed to even participate properly yeah. and and cover your risk and all those those things um i guess for us uh yeah it was, it was surprising i'm not going to say it wasn't but having said that you know not overly so um because again in the chaos of covid um you know i actually thought there was going to be a lot more of that type of just unimaginable uh unimaginable market activity so yeah. um and then so you, know, you were mentioning has it taken a it's kneecapped the uh Calgary areas, oil producers? It's been been absolutely devastating to the Calgary area. You know, Calgary and the Canadian oil business was was struggling somewhat. Um, you know, quick Cole's notes and it ties to the Canadian crude ETF we ran. So it was based on on the price of, of heavy oil. So predominantly Canada is a heavy oil producer as opposed and to light sweet. The concept um, is that they have a lot of it, but it's harder to get out of the ground. So, it's more so it, 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 is, it is more intensive to get out of the ground. The biggest issue isn't really that because technology solves that. The biggest issue is getting the Canadian oil to market. Yeah, yeah. Right. So the biggest buyer, the buyer of 99% of our oil is the United States. Um, so that's been a great relationship. The U.S. generally produces light sweet, as you know, and, and then imports heavy. 
the refineries crave heavy because they get better margins out of it. They can do more with it. So that's historically come from markets like Venezuela. Uh, Venezuela is obviously a disaster. So where is it coming from? It's coming from Canada. The problem is we, you know, you got to get it to market. So more and more refineries want it. How do we get it there? And we only the so, US only don't so much want pipeline. pipelines. Well, it's, you know, it's, it's, that's definitely not a, just a U.S. thing. I mean, uh, there's only so much pipeline capacity to the U.S. and even within Canada. Um, the, the big difference between Canada as an oil producer is we have no way of getting our oil, uh, other than a very small sliver at this point, to Tidewater. It's all right. domestic stays in North America. So the challenge is, you know, if we don't have the pipeline capacity, well, then you start using things like rail cars. So rail has been used now for quite some time to get this excess capacity to the U.S. markets and across Canada, uh, but again, primarily the U.S. So it's been a controversy for a decade plus of, of getting a pipeline uh, across from Alberta, across the Rockies, out to the Vancouver area. And, and on to Tidewater and, in, you know, then the potential to the Asian markets. Right. And, and that that's, seems like a no-brainer, but it has been a Canadian uh, fight for a decade. It's been vicious. What's the um, cost they're throwing around? Well, the costs are billions, but, but it's not even so much the cost as, you know, the bigger players, you know, like Kinder Morgan walking away. They've, you know, when they walked away two years ago from the Trans Mountain Pipeline, they basically said that the political environment was was not worth the risk in Canada. Yeah. So, so who loses out of that? Well, Canada doesn't get their oil to market and our oil gets heavily discounted versus other barrels. And so, you know, that, that's a fairly silly thing to do and I'm being polite. Yeah. We made, we made the decision, we're a resource producing country. We made the decision to extract a resource but we don't have the ability to get a global price for it. And we've got one client for our, for our product. Right. It's almost like you should have just left it in the ground. Then it's the most idiotic thing. So back to your question, how's Calgary doing? Well, <laughs> you've devastated, you've devastated for sure the mid and junior size oil companies, the, the bigger ones will, will survive. Um, but it, 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 at, at, the, at the low prices, and then remember, so it's not just $40 WTI, but then if you discount 10 or $15 uh, to, get, to get to the price in Canada, yeah. well, you're not at an economic level. So, so this has devastated the, the industry in Alberta. Um, the environmental push from Greta on down has put a lot of pressure on it. Um, the Canadian banks have generally funded the oil business in, in Canada and, and other foreign banks. And they've got- Are they walking away? They're walking away. What, uh, lost my train of thought there. Go, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just gonna say, so, you know, it's put an enormous pressure on the energy business. And again, coming back to one of my first comments, Canada is not a small oil producer. Canada is a, Canada is a very large oil producer. Yes, the US is bigger, but the reserves we have are a lot bigger, right? Yeah. So, so you know, this has some implications. Well, now you got a shale oil problem in the United States because it's not economic and nobody wants to fund that either. So all of a sudden we go from, you know, we got too much oil to we got COVID and we don't need oil. And then we realized, well, we're still using quite a bit of oil. And, and I have the belief that we're going to continue to use oil for a long time and we should do it by incredibly high environmental standards and, and all the rest. 
but that that's not going to go away. And I think we're probably like, like many other things, we're probably going to cycle where we've had too much oil. Sorry about that. We've had too much oil and uh, then, you know, then we're not going to have enough because there is not the capital investment in the energy business and it's a resource. And if you don't, and they, can't just capital, it, they can't just turn it back on. Um, it's not that simple. And, and, you know, so, so many producers in Canadian markets and in some of the U S markets are failing. They're shutting in production. Um, and, and, and I'll leave this one almost conspiracy like theory, yeah, <laughs> but, but I really don't believe Saudi Arabia has as much oil as they say they do. Yeah. We've got lots of reasons to believe that. Um, we got lots of friends who've worked in that space and, and, you know, old boys that I've known that have spent careers over there and they don't believe uh, it's as good as, as, as they've kind of uh, somehow convinced the world to think. Why do you think they're diversifying away from oil so aggressively? Right. Canada or has- selling their stake in their prized possession. It's crazy, right? So there's all these signs. And so Canada has this big reserve and has you know the biggest market in the world and the best friend in the United States, yet can't get our act together. And so, yeah, there's going to be some, there's going to have to be some changes, but I think the potential is that, you know, the economies will, will come back and, and we still need to burn oil because there's a lot of transportation, you know, even if you're, you know, as green as you can be, you're, you're using oil for pretty much everything. And, um, the are we going to see uh, Pickering for provincial governor? At some point, you sound, it sounds like a good a political platform to say, save Alberta. I've spent a lot of time um, talking to our current government in Alberta, um, largely around. Um, so and I don't, I don't know what they're called. I apologize. What, what's the so, governor equivalent called? Uh, premier. premier. So our, pre, our premier uh, is, you know, trying to help out our economy, obviously. Uh, bearing in mind a large portion of our provincial revenues come from oil royalties and the royalties that we gain in Alberta are what we call barrel in kind. They actually get barrels and have to sell them. Uh, so, you know, when you've devastated the oil price and you've got a big discount, now you've got a province that's gone from a very, very successful province to really being in a lot of trouble. Why I tell you that is I have no political ambitions whatsoever. However, I really want to help my government understand how to manage risk in the oil business. Yeah, especially if they get the oil instead of cash. That seems like a, a bad setup. That's right. So right? Alaskans get cash, okay. right? That's right. So, so it's the same it. setup, essentially, that they get a piece of every barrel, but it's yep. in barrels. Yep, that's right. So they, they have enormous risk. Um, you know, on the books for Albertan citizens in terms of the revenues that, that are the core infrastructure drivers of our economy. So, if so, only you know, knew someone who could help them hedge that risk. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I've, I've been fairly active in that space, um, in the media, in our province, on radio programs, um, as an advocate for a more active uh, program of risk management for our oil uh, and energy revenues. Pickering for Premier. It's got a nice ring to it. The signs would look nice. Go on to uh, finish up with our favorites. Get back to some of your personal side, then we'll be done. Sure. Uh, favorite Canadian food, tradition, spot, something Americans don't know about. Takeaway spot. Favorite Canadian food or tradition? 
favorite Canadian food. Are uh, there any poutine? Yeah, I, I mean, I think those are the ones that, that come to mind. Um, I have to think about that for a second. I mean, right, I think well, I, th I, I would say that I would say that uh, Canadian Canadian beer probably takes the cake. Yeah, I, I could agree with that. What's your favorite Canadian beer? Labatt? Is that a fake? Oh, I would say just some local. Yeah, no, it's maybe like Molson Canadian. Yeah. All right. Um, favorite American city. I got to say two. Two, and, all right. Yeah, there's two that come to mind. I, I love the city of Miami. Um, and, you know, because of our industry, we've got the opportunity to spend quite a bit of time there and have friends there and really enjoy it. But, but the second, you know, and it's equal is Chicago. Nice. I, and I the knew, reason- That's the why reason, I asked. I knew you were gonna say Chicago. The reason for it is going to Chicago as a commodity trader is like going to Mecca. Yeah. It's, it truly, is a culture of people that feels very comfortable to me. It's very different than being in New York or, or other metropolitan areas. Chicago just feels right. I'm, I'm worried about that long-term without the trading floors and it's all servers and ones and yep. zeros now. Like, is that yep. culture gonna exist, persist? Well, and, and we have the same concern in Calgary. You know, people say it's an oil town and it's got this edge to it because of it. Um, you know, you go through downtown Calgary right now, not even just because of COVID, it's, it's pretty devastating. Mm. Favorite Calgary uh, restaurant for anyone coming to visit? It was a restaurant that I take pretty much all my visitors to called Buchanan's uh, in downtown Calgary. It's been around since 1988 when we had the Olympics uh, family run. Uh, you never have a bad meal. It's got to be one of the best places on the planet. Done. Favorite Canadian ski resort? Uh, I would have to say Lake Louise, which is, uh, you know, outside of Calgary, just two hours to the west. Um, yep. Holds the, the first stop on the World Cup downhill uh, for men and women every uh, November. Um, Lake Louise is definitely the place. Yeah. One of the prettiest ones as well, right? Beautiful spot right in Banff National Park, yeah. And then everyone, we asked favorite Star Wars character. <laughs> Are you a fan? Uh, I'm a big fan. Nice. I'm a big fan. Um, favorite. Um, I, I'd still have to say Luke Skywalker. All right. Luke, you got a little Luke with the long hair, but uh, <laughs> my, I'm still going with a COVID cut here. <laughs> Actually, I, just got a, I just got a haircut this week. And it was getting pretty shaggy. Getting a little unruly. Yeah. All right, Tim, well, it's been fun. Thanks so much. Um, My pleasure. Have a great weekend. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Jeff. All the best. All right, buddy. You've been listening to The Derivative. Links from this episode will be in the episode description of this channel. Follow us on Twitter at rcmalt and visit our website to read our blog or subscribe to our newsletter at rcmalt.com. If you liked our show, introduce a friend and show them how to subscribe. And be sure to leave comments. We'd love to hear from you.